are listening to the Fuerte Network. Welcome to We Are Home, Arizona, an immigration podcast. My name is Carlos Navarro. Uh, I am your co-host for today, and I'm here with Dani Orona, my co-host. ¿Cómo estás, Dani? Carlos, I'm doing so good. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for everybody for tuning in once again to our podcast and uh, spreading the word on everything, all of our important information that we have on immigration. Remember, this podcast is by immigrants for immigrants. And I know we got a couple of very special guests today. And I'm going to start off by congratulating one of them. He's been on the podcast before. He just was brought onto the team, to the Fuerte team. He is our newest fellow. He's going to be our production fellow, helping us out with everything, recording, with video, with production, and of course, with appearing with us. So Jesus Vasquez, welcome to the show and welcome to the team officially once again. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, Fuerte is giving me right now to grow in a, in a field and to take control of projects that they want to be done. And I'm really excited because I've met the team so far. All of you guys are really great and I'm just really excited. And of course, we have another special guest. Before we get to her, Carlos, would you like to explain what we're here to talk about today? It's some very, very important news to something that we've been fighting for like not only months, for a couple of years now. Yeah, of course, ever since the pandemic started, there's been a lot going on. In los centros de detención, at the border, especially with Title 42, the migrant protection protocols, as well as a lot of the negligence going on in detention centers. So uh, right here to my left is my really good friend, Rochelle. Rochelle, do you, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Rochelle Rivera. I am from Puerto Rico, and I... I'm currently a legal assistant for immigrants in detention, so I work with with pro se people, people who can't afford an attorney, and so that they are able to represent themselves in court and sort of know their rights and, and what they can ask for in court. And Rochelle, I know you're also pretty active at the border, right? And going to Nogales? Yeah, so I, I've been a few times. Um, I, I wish I could go more often. Gas is getting a little steep. Yeah, no <laughs> um, fear. <laughs> Definitely. But yeah, and so I've, I've participated in some efforts to end Title 42 at the border, visited the, the comedor down there. Um, and it's just very eerie. It's very eerie to to experience that, to to see this wall that so many people call for. It's there and it's not so nice. It's there in some parts. Right. And, and some yeah. parts missing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've talked a lot about it in in past episodes. What is Title 42? For those of you just tuning in for your first episode, Rochelle, would you mind explaining to us exactly what Title 42 is? Sure. So Title 42 is a policy that was put by the Trump administration. And essentially, it was put in place to because of the COVID pandemic and so to stop people from, from crossing at the border. So it basically takes away the right to apply for asylum at the border. And what we're seeing now and what we've been seeing for the last few months is that it, this is no longer a sort of public health issue. It's become a political issue and detention centers that house thousands of people and now only have a 
few, like I can count them with less than two hands, cases like this is no longer an appropriate response. And also another thing about Title 42 is that certain countries cannot be expelled back to Mexico under Title 42, so then they end up in detention anyway. So you're holding them under Title 42, facing immediate expulsion, not having the right to to request asylum, to be in front of a judge, to have a credible fear interview even, but then you're still detained and some some people would be in detention for months before they would be deported back. So would it be the equivalent of being detained and housed in jail without being arrested? Is Is that kind of like what we're seeing? I guess so. I mean, people are arrested, so they are apprehended and and they're just sort of, yeah, put in prison. Essentially, like I detention centers are prison. <laughs> they look like a prison. They are operated by the same people that operate prisons. And that's what's so frustrating about this, that somebody who's fleeing, you know, different things, different vulnerabilities, they they just come to a place where their freedom is still taken away <laughs> in in this space. And correct me if I'm wrong. The reason that they brought it that supposedly for the sake of public health and everything is because they wanted to reduce COVID crossing the border. Right. Correct. That mm-hmm. is the disguise that they put over the top of it. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, now people can go to Mexico to party. People can go yep. to, to Rocky Point, to the beach, yep. to TJ and then come back. And and the other thing is, so like I said, there's there's other countries that are totally exempt from Title 42, for example, Ukraine. Ukrainians are able to ask for asylum at the border or at any port of entry, and Mexican families, Guatemalan families are still being turned away. So how are you going to say this is a public health issue when, sir, you know, like that doesn't, that's kind of, it doesn't make sense, <laughs> period. <laughs> Before we move on, especially for people listening who don't really know what asylum is, yeah, I feel like a lot of people see people come to the border and say, why are they coming here? Like, mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't know that asylum, codified in U.S. law, you have to go to the border to ask for asylum, right? Yeah. So you ask for asylum, you have, once you enter through the border, through a visa or... Whichever way you enter, you have a year to affirmatively request asylum. And there's certain grounds in asylum. You you suffered from racial persecution, political persecution, or you're part of a particular social group that is not protected in your country. For example, we see a, a lot of West African countries, immigrants coming because of LGBTQ rights. We forget that in a lot of these countries, the law is very different and people are not protected in the same way. There's a lot of corruption, gangs, all of these things. And so that is a way for them to to seek asylum, to seek a safe haven. I think what you said, too, was interesting about the Ukrainian families. And mm-hmm. I'm not trying to hablar mal de any situation that's happening. Absolutely. But yeah. I saw some news stories, I think, two days ago where... Ukrainian families were walking past Central mm-hmm. American families at the border and yeah. they were being let in. Mm-hmm. And Central Americans were going to the border and being told no mm-hmm. on the same grounds that they're exempt from. Mm-hmm. So it kind of does seem pretty political and on what the U.S. thinks is, is important to do with foreign policy. And Absolutely. I think we were talking about this yesterday. Yeah, exactly. And just like um, I, I've been thinking about a lot about how immigration justice goes along with it by mano mano with racial justice um and so i think we we're getting to see that a lot through title 42 and what's been going on with it and 
we were hoping that it would end by now. And we've been we've been doing, you know, we've been making the calls. We've been going to the border. We or there was this big event led by by migrants to try to just cross the border, protected by attorneys, U.S. citizens. And it was a few dozen families. And the first family tried to cross and they just shut the border down and left us all on the Mexico side for hours. Like they were just, no, we're not going to do this. And so to see that is really disheartening. Um, Like I said, to see that in this country where like we're all about freedom and our rights and all of these things and protecting our people. And we don't see that. <laughs> we're a lot about PR is what I think it is, because obviously when we talk about families coming from the Ukraine and seeking asylum, very justifiably so they're coming in here to protect their families, to escape a literal war that is going on right there. Right. And that is 100 percent what we should be doing, opening the doors to let them in, just like we should be doing with all of Central American and Mexican families trying to do the same. Mm -hmm. The difference here is that their countries have not declared war on the violence that they're fleeing, on the drug cartels, on the rapists, of everything that they're escaping from. There's no document saying that there is war against that. And that, that right there is, is just the slight difference in what our community faces than Ukraine. And once again, I'm saying that Ukrainian families are doing the right thing and the U.S. is doing the right thing by letting them in. Do that for everybody. Right. Right. Exactly. Do it for everybody. <laughs> I think over the last year like that we've we've worked together, I've really seen like the limitations in asylum and refugee law. Like people mm -hmm. I personally think should get protection. They're deported. They're told no by an immigration judge with like a 98 percent asylum denial rate. So just like the limitations and how the law works and how it functions in real life is really disheartening because I see people who are running from cartels who just because of involvement are told no, like moms, like people that remind me of my own mom being told, mm. no, you're going to go back. You're sending them to their deaths, too. Yeah. Rochelle, how have you seen your immigration work evolve over the years throughout this pandemic? Hmm, that's a good question. So before I was doing detention work, I was mostly working with immigrant survivors of domestic violence. And so when the pandemic started, it was just kind of like a boom in, in our cases. People were stuck inside with their abusers. Some people were learning that they were being survivors of, of domestic violence. And and I guess turning it more into that, I guess that's more like social. Um, I think we saw that across all of DV, unfortunately. But in the immigration aspect, it just feels like I mean, like with Title 42, that we're using, or our government, I guess, is using a public health crisis that no one is any longer talking about. Like, I was telling someone, like, the war with Russia and Ukraine is, on, is like in the media now. That's what we hear about now. We don't hear about the pandemic anymore. And then Will Smith smacked Chris Rock in the face a few oh days gosh. ago. And now you're not hearing about Ukraine and Russia as more because everyone's focused on that. So all of these like really big changes are occurring in immigration policy and like these budgets are being raised and these large amounts of money are being raised to put into the detention centers to detain more people. And how is that sustainable? 
and I want to get into that a little bit because when you say budgets are, are going up, not necessarily to help these families. Right. Listen, right. we want to make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Like they're giving more money to these to these prison companies so that they have more space they can house detain more people and yeah exactly how is that fixing the problem how is that giving a safe place for these families who are seeking asylum who might be fleeing being in prison um in their own countries and for people who don't really know um the the kind of the scheme that's set up with the government and private companies uh detention for immigrants is run by specifically two companies two very very billion dollar companies uh, Core Civic and the Geo Group, mm-hmm. uh, and the more beds those companies are able to fill in detention centers, the more money they get. Yeah. So this is all this is a for profit company, mm-hmm. and m- like most prisons across the country, people make money when there's more people in prisons. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to say that there's there's probably something going on. Let's, I'll be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the more no los hagamos que no vemos, <laughs> si sabemos, and yeah. like. Rochelle and I were talking um, yesterday. We were at a coffee shop, just kind of talking about policy and how it was eight point one million, right? The eight point one million. The yeah. the amount of budget increase, or I think, billion. yesterday, something like that, and that's not going towards immigrants. That's going to to ICE. To ICE, yeah, militarizing mm-hmm. the border, like increasing enforcement, increasing like prison capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot at play, and there's a lot going on, and it's really disheartening to see because. Even under a democratic administration with mm-hmm. someone that said, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And who can campaign on a lot of these issues, the opposite's happening. Yeah, exactly. And that's another thing, because, again, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe Biden can wake up tomorrow to say, let's end this. And he can end Title 42, right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, it's within his authority. Yeah. Uh, the immigration power for for the government is under i mean he said he was gonna do that yeah. and he campaigned on that right right yeah. is he gonna wait for the final year campaign year is, is that because that's what we're used to that yeah. carlos you and i have talked about this ad nauseum for yeah for a long time where we've we've been these just political tools for for these politicians for generations so mm-hmm. are we gonna see that that uh that rally cry when it comes to election year 2024 I think it's very interesting because there's been a lot of talks on ending Title 42 and uh, we've gotten like, I don't want to say confirmation, but there's been a lot of talks Mm -hmm. that it's going to end by the end of this week. And that comes from, you know, the actual enforcement agencies. But the way that they do these things and they decide immigration policy, Rochelle and I were talking about it too. It's very like under the table, very Mm -hmm. like hush hush. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a big announcement. It's they sometimes they just do things like quick and everyone is kind of left scrambling. Rochelle, what is it like working with kids versus adults in immigration detention? To be honest, I haven't worked with kids in immigration detention. They do go through just like a different process in general. Usually when CBP officers come across families at the border, they they usually don't detain them. If they detain them, they'll take them to a shelter and process their case there. So is I actually uh, worked at one of those shelters oh, for really? three years. Yeah. I, I've never seen what one of these shelters looks like. I've I've heard different stories about it, but it is, I guess, different in that way. But that also brings up this like other thought, which is something that we run across a lot in adult detention, is that sometimes you'll have a family, let's say a mom with her 
five-year-old daughter and her 18-year-old son, her 18-year-old son will be detained and he will be tried as an adult because he's 18. But then the family is separated and a lot of times they don't have that time to establish what sort of communication they're able to have before they're separated. So then we have people, you know, looking for their mom, looking for their dad, looking for their sister um, while detained, while also being so confused about what's going on. How did I even end up in prison in the first place? Yeah, because uh, the experience that I have working uh, in, at that company for 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 three years is that the, the ICE would bring in the kids. We would get the notification that we're going to be getting these three intakes mm-hmm. and the entire process, they're numbers to mm-hmm. to the, to this to this agency. Yep. So their intakes when we're when they're actually in the center itself, they're called clients, mm-hmm. and we we know them by their age and their A number. And so when they they come in, they get they come in literally in chains, so handcuffed by the wrist and handcuffed by their ankles uh, half the time. Half the time they do, half the time they don't. But uh, yeah, once they do, they're they're they just got separated from their parents. They've been driven around. Sometimes they yeah. come from California, sometimes from Texas. So they've been driven around for hours with these armed officers that don't know how to speak to them. They don't know their language. And then we're supposed to take them in, get there as as soon as they come in within an hour. We need to get their entire history of where what what they've experienced so far, what they've passed. Take an inventory of every little thing that they've been carrying them with their bags. We've seen them c- coming in with uh, as little as their shirts on their back, or they've we've had others that come in with with the medicine that they take. We've had kids that have diabetes to have their diabetic medication with them on them, like they've been trained to inject themselves because yeah. their parents didn't know how how long they were gonna be by themselves crossing the desert. Once they're living there, I do have to say the workers truly cared about these kids. The direct caregivers did everything to make them comfortable and make sure that that they felt safe and everything but everything above what was called the youth care workers everything above them they were these kids were numbers they were just another case on the file that we needed to get out in order to bring in the next one to fill the bed and that just kind of heartlessness that it takes from them it shows how cold higher-ups decision makers politicians see our community mm-hmm. i think one of the scariest things too is i've had clients who uh, aged out of, of mm-hmm. child detention so the day yep. they turn 18 they're sent to adult detention mm-hmm. and the maturity level between being 17 and 364 days is nowhere different yeah. to being 18 and zero days right. so literal kids are being transported to adult detention without either their friends or people they grew up with for the last year or two and it's just terrifying and it's really heartbreaking and some of now that you touch on that some of these age redeterminations they don't even base them on birth certificates so they might have a child who they think is 18 based on their teeth yep that's what they look at and then how but how how can you make that conclusion you know like we we live in a very westernized like you know country where Lots of dentists take care of our teeth. Not every child has that. And so, yeah, we, we've had that case, too, where we have these kids, quote unquote, sent to adult detention. And then it turns out they're 16, 15. Yeah, because uh, the way you say, all your teeth look like they've been around right. for 40 years or whatever. Yep. 
dude, I've never seen toothpaste before in my life. Exactly. Yeah. Or never been to a dentist. Or or maybe been, they just yeah. weren't accessible like yeah. in the communities. Exactly. Yeah. So we can't compare them to the same way that we treat ourselves here. No, that that is 100% true. Mm-hmm. I just think there's just so many problems. Like, I feel like we could be here for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, we really like, could. Like, we talking about could. every single thing. Like, even <laughs> medical, totally. like, bringing up, yeah. like, the, the teeth thing. Like, even in detention, like, you're not, like... No, no todos los medicamentos que necesitas. No. Like the other day, I learned that you don't need HIV, or they don't need to give you HIV medication when you're in detention. We had, or really, I, I had a client at one point who is epileptic, had documentation showing about his epilepsy, experienced an epileptic episode on one of his first days of detention, and still they're only giving him ibuprofen. Wow. For epilepsy. For epilepsy. And and that's really dangerous. At any point, this man can go into renewal crisis, have another really big episode, and God forbid something happens. But, but those are the sort of things that we see. And we also see people who just don't report their illness because... They tell them, "Oh, your case will your your case will get prolonged. You'll be detained longer mm-hmm. if you have an illness." So how how dare you take that right away? <laughs> right, Rochelle. In your experience, because you said you're from Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you growing up, like changing a little bit the subject yeah. from from these kids. <laughs> did you uh <laughs> did did you experience any of the the same kind of prejudices? that maybe people from other countries or from Latin America experience? I guess in the sense that when people see me, they don't perceive me as Puerto Rican. They they usually think I'm from some Central American country. And then I kind of have to correct them. And then they're like, I, I used to get this question. I got this question when I was like in middle school. Somebody asked me, do you live in a palm tree? And I was like, yep, I live in a palm tree with my family of like 11 people. How does that make sense to you? And and the situation in Puerto Rico is very different. And and I do always try to check Puerto Ricans in the mainland and sort of remind them like our immigration process is nowhere near the same. And this is something that me and Carlos were talking about recently also in my experience or what I've observed in Puerto Rican generations. It's so much easier for us to assimilate in America because we we don't have to go through the same process. We don't have to go through the same legal process, which involves so much and takes so much time. So the I feel like second generation, third generation Puerto Ricans, once they've been in the mainland, they're really good at keeping like that Puerto Rican patriotism and but they lose the language and Mm. like some of the customs and where with other Latin American countries we were talking about like seventh generation and there's still like fluent Spanish speakers yeah I have a Um, friend who like she's like the director of like an immigration organization but like her her family's been here since like the treaty of like Guadalupe Hidalgo and like oh wow they're still like (laughs) Mexican Mexican I'm like bro you've been here for like 200 or not 200 years like 100 years like (laughs) a long time but yeah but when people like see me on the street or or yeah just like have that first perception of me they usually don't like think that I'm from Puerto Rico you're Mexican all brown people are Mexican yeah and when I get pulled over by a cop he asks me for my documentation just like yeah (laughs) (laughs) Puerto Rico like a lot of like and 
Am I, you can correct me if I'm wrong in my personal experience. I see Puerto Rico as like its own country because it has its it own feels customs. feels that way in yeah. a lot of ways, yeah. Um, the treatment from the U.S. to Puerto Rico is a little like, like a lot of like our our countries that we come from. Like, would you agree with that? So to a certain point, I would agree with that. There's there's a lot of stuff that happens under the table between Puerto Rico and the U.S. Um, lots of, again, little policies, little things that we don't know about. And Puerto Ricans were really wrapped up in this, in the American dream. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of Puerto Ricans felt like, oh, my gosh, we got our ticket. And, and we got there without, like, really even asking for it. Because the governor at that time decided it was a good idea to make that treaty. And now I think we're, now that those things are coming to light, a lot of people are, are feeling differently. Um, and we're seeing a lot more like rising up in the island itself and a lot more like, I used to always kind of see Puerto Ricans in the island as sort of like, like complacent, I guess, in some ways. Like now that we sort of get the dynamic a little better and we're seeing a lot of gentrification down there, people are kind of like, wait, <laughs> this isn't, this is colonialism. <laughs> this isn't freedom. And we don't even have the right to vote. Like it's as simple as that. <laughs> we don't vote for the president. Now we, I guess we vote for the governor, but this, there's a fiscal board who goes above the governor anyway. We don't get to choose those people. So it's, yeah. It's really disheartening. <laughs> How are people from Puerto Rico taxed? Oh, that we could have a whole episode on that. <laughs> we could bring my dad thing. into there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's really good at that conversation. He tries to explain it to me sometimes, but I'm not really a numbers person. I'm much more like a social systems person. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but tax does work differently there. Um, for example, we have like import taxes and I was telling this to someone recently, like, for example, if we have imports from the Dominican Republic, which is a literally 15 minute plane ride away, it's so close, that ship has to go to the U.S. first. It has to come from a U.S. ship. So what? all of is that gone? money, all of, yeah, all of that transport, we end up paying for it in our in our taxes. That's horrible. It's pretty horrible. <laughs> now, can, now, can a U.S. ship meet them halfway and just kind of from one ship to another? Car? You would think. <laughs> and, it, and it was and it was a big issue when Maria hit and, and so many countries wanted to give us aid right. and they couldn't. So like it's got to go through him first and then and come, back. come down here. Yeah. Like, wow, that's that is absolutely ridiculous. Has your yeah. and that makes me interested. Like, has your identity as like a Puerto Rican and seeing all of that stuff affected your your transition into like the immigration sphere and like into the work that you do? Totally. I mean, I I'm very patriotic about being Puerto Rican. I think a lot of Latinos feel that way about where they come from. But I. So when I was, I went to school for social work and I I just knew that I wanted to be involved in the Latino community. I was like, I want for these systems to have people that look like us, you know, to, to serve the people we are serving or like the servers be the people we are serving as well. And so, like I said, Puerto Rico is so different. We, we don't even really we can't really even conceptualize immigration issues over there until we get here and we're like, 
oh, that's how it works for everyone else. And so I, I had that, um, I, I saw that very like abruptly. And, and when I started college and being, I was the only Puerto Rican in a lot of Latino circles. Where'd you go to college? Michigan State. Okay. Go green. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so I I was like, where where can I be? Where can I work best for my community? Where can I give them the most? And and immigration was it. Like, there's so many so many Latinos who are affected by immigration, whether that's legally, socially, culturally, and there's so much need. Um, there yeah. really is so much need. And so, yeah, that's kind of what brought me into this work. And I've sort of like, I've, I've embraced it within my Latinidad. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's my purpose. It's what I'm here for. <laughs> so from there, what brought you to Arizona? Oh, that's a great question. I'm kind of like a nomad. <laughs> nice. I've been kind of everywhere, but uh, I was working in Boston and Working with survivors of domestic violence is is a lot, especially when your your own personal stuff kind of starts getting in there. So I did experience some burnout and decided to move back to Puerto Rico, try to regroup there. Um, but the immigration issue isn't an issue in Puerto Rico. We right. even we're we're very welcoming of immigrants, <laughs> you know, in the ways that we can be. And and ICE is very different in Puerto Rico than it is in in the U.S. and in, in the mainland U.S. in, in ways of treatment, etc. But is it still U.S. agents or is it Puerto Rican agents? It is. Well, they're Puerto Rican. Okay. Um, the same agency? But same agency. So but under yeah. the purview of the United States. Right, right. Okay, it's okay. still ICE U.S., but okay. Puerto Ricans operate it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I did. I did work for a private immigration firm for a little bit down there and then just felt the I don't know that I guess moral weight of, you know, charging a woman $20,000 for a U visa. Oof. Like that just felt uh, felt wrong. <laughs> yeah. I was like this is this isn't it. Like yes, I want to do immigration work, but that's not the immigration work that I I wanted to do. That's not that's not the social work. So my good friend worked for for this organization in in Arizona, and she like would send me the postings every time they would come up, and I was like, "Let's do it. Let's go to Arizona." So a very long answer to your very short question, but that's how I'm here. No, no, that's what we're here to learn. Like, but we, I'm super journey. proud of you. Like, <laughs> Thank you. I know, like immigration is a pretty like heavy topic. I know. Um, and we've done episodes on this before, like like mental health and like burnout and like the fact that like a lot of people see a lot of themselves in mm -hmm. the people that they help. Mm -hmm. But like super proud of you. Like I actually met Rochelle like working at yeah. where we work. So super proud of you. Like Thank you. I love like the fact that you took a lot of like your background in yourself and put it into like the clients that you see and the work that you do every day. So just hella proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I agree, um, actually. I get, I know it takes like a strong person to to come across these issues and especially to think about them uh, very deeply. But it's good to know that there is people out there helping. And um, I mean, anybody can help if they're uh, well informed mm -hmm. and if also they have like the, the encouragement and the heart to do it because yeah. it takes a lot. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and I personally just want to acknowledge how you staying in that field, knowing you didn't have to. Mm -hmm. Like I've seen in 
all sorts of communities in the Puerto Rican community, in the Mexican community, Guatemala, Honduras, so many families that as soon as they get not even their citizenship, just residency, they're in the clear. No, that's not my issue anymore. I'm yes. good. Mm-hmm. And they stay away and they they don't help. They they don't reach out. They don't contribute because they and their family are good. Mm-hmm. So the problem is over for them. And for you to never have like that need to do it like out of necessity, you wanted to do it because, you know, it was the right thing. And so I just want to thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> Feels very nice to be able. I always say I I hate my job. I hate that. Or I love my job. I hate that it exists. <laughs> um, but I love that I get to do something about it. And I love that I get a say. <laughs> Bueno, Rochelle, muchas gracias por yeah. estar aquí con nosotros. Thank you for having Bien orgulloso me. de ti. Y pues, <laughs> ahí pues estamos en contacto. Y Where can people follow you? Back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Follow me on Instagram. R-O-C-H-Y-9-6. I post lots of cool stuff. <laughs> and uh, if people want to help out, like, can they help out where you work, contribute, or do anything for, yeah, for the work that so you do? Yeah, so I will actually be posting a fundraiser on my Instagram page coming up. It's the Arizona, I believe it's like the Arizona Helping Day, something like that coming up. Oh, Arizona up. Gives. Arizona, Arizona Gives, gives. Yeah, that's what go. it's called. <laughs> there we go. I'm a new Arizonian. I'm learning. <laughs> but yeah, so it's going to be Arizona Gives coming up and we'll be having a fundraiser. I think our fundraising goal is like 25000 Carlos puede solo con eso. Carlos suerte. So yeah, um, if you want to follow me, I can, I can send you that link over as well. Yeah, definitely send it over. We'll put it in our show link so you guys can, uh, can go ahead and contribute to that contribute to fuerte contribute to the dog society contribute to something even if it's just a couple of dollars yeah. you have no idea how much yeah. that small amount can contribute if everybody starts doing that find a cause i'm guarantee you you can find a cause that you guys like so mm-hmm. if you don't find one fuerte is right there rochelle i want to once again thank you for being on and uh once again congratulate jesus who's gonna be yeah. a, a part of the team continue yeah. to production yeah. and so much <laughs> i really appreciate it and uh, and of course the uh, I want to invite people to go back to learn more about Jesus in the episode that we did while we were in DC. Yeah. Yes, guys, go check it out. Um, it was actually uh, Daniel's first time in DC, right? It was my first time. Yeah. Um, and he was like, "What's going on?" I'm like, "There's always stuff going on here." Yep. And um, between Jesus and Carlos, they took me everywhere. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good time over there. Definitely. And then Danny handed me like a a microphone with a camera. And it was a good time. <laughs> And oh yeah, we definitely so guys make sure you guys uh, check that out on our feed. I uh, want to uh, thank everybody part of this episode. We have been your hosts Danny Orona and Carlos Yanes, our guest Rochelle Rivera Leal, and of course um, Jesus for being here once again. Graphics have been done by Karina Dominguez, music by Dominic Medina, executive produced by Danny Orona and Dominic Medina. Shout out to Fuerte, Frecuencia Alterna, and Cahoots Co-working Spaces for helping us out and make sure all this gets done. Guys, don't forget to like, subscribe, share. And uh, now you guys could actually leave a review on Spotify. So like before, that was just an iTunes thing. Make sure you guys leave a good review here. Tell your friends about it. We're always posting information. We're always telling stories. And that is how we're going to create change. Muchas gracias a todos. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye, guys. Mm-hmm.